Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Monday, September the 21st, 2020. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If I'm not on one, let me know. And if you want to interact with me personally, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Well, welcome in, everybody. A packed show. We've got a ton to talk about here as we head to the final week of the baseball season. And yes, I could start out and I could talk to you about the Mets who are in this quote-unquote race for the final playoff spot. I feel like we're talking about the NBA here or the NHL 8 seed. And uh, NHL 8 seed, you could probably go somewhere. And even though there's probably a lot of Knicks fans in the audience, and in theory, you could go a lot of places. If you look back at history with the NBA 8th seed, in reality, you don't. So you're winning a spot to be in the playoffs. It's not a what I would call a banner achievement in a season that I have said since day one. I'm not sure how many banners or pennants fans will hang up in their offices, or I'm sure teams will. I mean, that's that's part of it, but... You guys know what uh, I'm talking about. And what's interesting is that even to a certain degree today, as uh, we talk about the current team, as I've gone back to when the season started, we we haven't really talked a lot about the team in season and about the nuances of the season 
you know, what we did last year as, as the Mets headed down the stretch to compete for the postseason, where we really go week in and week out, talk about the nuances, talk about what happened and, and what's ahead. And look, uh, I'm not going to sit here and spend an hour breaking down the Mets and their possibilities. We got a lot to get into. I mean, Sandy Alderson may be coming back. The media is giving tons of advice to the potential new owner. Luis Rojas, for the first time, we heard uh, some analysis about his job. He's almost been forgotten about as much as he's the manager of the team. And there's been more attacks on Brandon Nimmo. Not personal attacks, but more attacks on his game that I wanted to address. And I can't believe we're going down that route again, but we are. But anyway, to start out, here's what I would say. The Mets got to go 6-1 and or 7-0 and to just get into a conversation about that final spot. And we want to talk about an achievement. I mean, it would be nice to get out of this 530-30. As I told you guys at the beginning, 35 wins is what uh, is going to get it for you uh, to win the whole damn division. And sure enough, uh, you know, that's pretty much what it what it's going to take. If you go and look at the National League, if the Mets were in that 35-win range or on pace, that's about what Atlanta is probably going to win. And uh, I was right on the money on that one. It doesn't take a genius to figure out the math, but uh, I was right on the money on that one. But look, the Mets are not a team, and I've said this many, many, many times over the last couple of weeks, that when you look at the rotation, when you look at the fact that the even the bullpen, there's a dearth of high-leverage relievers that you could trust in a big spot. Uh, the Mets are not a team that could be... Uh, and they're not right now a team that can can go on a sustained winning streak. That's why you have the the fits and starts that you've seen throughout the whole summer. You get a nice couple of wins in Philly, and then you get blown out on Friday. You get a nice win on Saturday, and then again, uh, you know, it was more the bullpen on Sunday. Rick Porcello had a great start, and he showed you that as most back of the rotation guys are, they could still provide you with a decent quality, and sometimes a number one or number two level start, they just can't do it consistently. I mean, that's that's why you have to evaluate Porcello differently than you would, uh, you know, somebody else. Uh, so I, I'm not going to sit here and and dive into how can the Mets get to 6-1. and one. They, they basically have to sweep the Nats, who are playing out the string, and have had an awful year, but still have some really good players that... I'm not sure they're just going to, as, as a team that won a championship, I don't think they're just going to lay down the final four games of the season. And, and the Rays, a team that quietly continues to dominate the American League. And if you go up and down the stats, you sometimes scratch your head and go, who's this guy? Who's that guy? Get a chance to see them. And uh, the Mets are probably going to have a tough time taking two out of three out of that one. And that's the only way this is going to happen, is that if you take two out of three, and can they sweep back-to-back series? I, I guess anything's possible. I know that uh, it was a Dom Smith trying to bring up shades of 1999, which in a 60-game season and what that team was and how good that team was throughout the summer, people forget they probably record-wise were after the coaching firings and all that with the best team in baseball. Uh, not quite the same thing. But uh, anyway, uh, the real question to me as we look at what's up this final week and then it'll be really interesting as as this show evolves into a non-postseason Mets world. You know, what are we going to talk about? We have a, There's a new owner coming in, and, and we don't know what free agency and all that's going to look like. So we have things to talk about, but there's a possibility that we may have a little hiatus. You know, we'll see. There's some things I'm working on. But do you really feel good as a baseball fan about 
the fact that here we are on September the 21st, and if you go to MLB.com and you look at the standings, you break down the postseason standings that a team with a 450 winning percentage like the Mets can actually, in theory, be considered in the playoffs. Now, I know it's very loose, and it's very much, there's you know there's a lot of things against them, tiebreakers and whatnot, but how do you feel about that? And then hearing Rob Manfred earlier this week talk about how the owners like expanded playoffs, how does that make you feel? Because now you're starting to really take, and the concern I had with a lot of the trial balloons, and, and let's let's remember, going back to when, the league knew they were going to have this truncated season, an extremely truncated season. I think none of this happens if the league starts May 1st. If we have a short, you know, two, three week shutdown to figure out what's going on. And then once they realized that this was a lot bigger, the health issues were a lot bigger than they could even imagine. You knew this was going down a rabbit hole of, of a, at best, the 50 percent of the uh, season uh, being lost. So now, okay, let's use that as an opportunity to do some trial balloons with the runner on second, with the seven-inning doubleheaders, with the expanded playoffs. And I get it. 60 games, you're seeing that with stats, and, and you have certain players like Javi Baez and Christian Yelich, and here with Pete Alonso, they're just having awful seasons. And I think all those guys, if they were in a normal 162-game season without some of the uh, nonsense when it comes to watching video and maybe some of the protocols that make it a little bit harder to work on your game, I think over the course of that season, everybody has a bad, you know, four weeks, five weeks, six weeks. Not everybody's going to go through a charm season. So I, I think their numbers would uh, level out to closer to where you would expect them to be. Maybe Alonzo's the one because he's so messed up at the plate that you could question a little bit. But, but be that as it may, because of the fact that you're only dealing with a small sample size, I'll swallow. And as the season went on, I got the whole you know, NBA-style playoffs, eight teams in the in the National League, eight teams in the American League. But now that you're hearing that they want to expand this, it makes me wonder, I mean, are we going to have these mediocre teams fighting at the end of September for a playoff spot, celebrate, feel good, but almost feel like uh, we were given in a bowling tournament an extra 50 points or 100 points to compete because we, re- we really don't belong there. It's a big boy tournament. But for whatever reason, people want us to qualify and compete. So, okay, give these guys an extra 50-point handicap to get them to uh, the tournament finals. Part of this, and if you go to The Athletic and you read Keith Law, he said it, and I'm not a huge fan of Keith, but I've been saying this for a while. I think part of why they're doing even this or considering doing this going forward is because you just don't have – the will from a lot of front offices, from a lot of ownership groups to compete and win every year. It's much more profitable to sell a plan of a vision long-term, lightning in a bottle, I call it, where, hey, I'll rebuild for eight years and maybe I'll get a four-year run of greatness and get a championship or a pennant out of it, and uh, it'll all be worth it. And and what they forget is that those eight, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years leading up to it You've alienated a generation of fans. Uh, you know, maybe you could draw some of the hardcores to the ballpark. Maybe you could do a lot of carnival type events to get the fringes to the ballpark. But you're not really building any kind of interest in the team. You're certainly hurting the sport when you have a number of teams. I mean, right now you have. Uh, if this was a regular 162 game season, you've got six teams already playing uh, below 40, uh, 400 baseball. They're winning less than four out of every uh, 10 games. 
that's pretty bad. And, and you continue to see more and more hundred lost teams emerge. So it's basically the the Harlem Globetrotters versus the Washington Generals uh, on some days. So I look and and I think there is a middle ground. I think we all have to accept the fact that in some way, shape, or form. The league wants to generate more interest in its sport as you go down the stretch into the postseason, and they're going to need that postseason dollars. After this year, postseason dollars are going to be that much more important because I've said I think attendance, in-person attendance is becoming harder and harder every year for a variety of reasons, even before the pandemic. There's a lot of options out there. It's very expensive to go to a ball game. Uh, It's a hassle. The in-home experience, iPads, phones, big TVs, different types of angles, and and all these apps. I mean, all the things, the technology that MLB uh, Advanced Media has provided, as well as other sports, makes it where it's a better experience at home and cheaper than it is going to the ballpark. Now, I know that that takes away from the traditional view, let's get out in the sun, let's connect with the family and friends, and I think you see a lot of that, especially at City Field with you know, outings like the seven line and what have you, you can't simulate those at home. Anybody who thought that they could do that with apps and technology, all the the big tech guys, you can't do that. That's not happening. Uh, So you're still going to have that. But those things happen more frequently and with more passion and with more disposable income when the team competes and wins and is independent. And, And I think if you were in a normal season, I don't think you would be packing... City field over the next three days against the Rays. Maybe this weekend against the Braves after a nice uh, two out of three down in Philly, you'd have a nice crowd on on Saturday and Friday and Sunday. I, I think you might have that. The weather wasn't great; it was cooler, and with school back and the Jewish holiday, let's remember that um, it would be a completely uh, different situation. So let's let's throw some of those other factors out in a in a in a vacuum. Um, so I'm not sure the fans would take it as seriously. But once you get in and you're in this tournament, who the heck knows? And look, if for some reason you win 81, 82 games and you sneak in and you make it to the World Series, nobody talks, hardcore Mets fans, even though the 73 team doesn't get talked about in the same vein as, as other pennant-winning or championship Mets teams, nobody throws that win against the Reds back. That's the big red machine. You still beat a team that a couple of years later won a World Series back-to-back. I mean, they're not that's not chopped liver, and, and they probably should have beat Oakland if the ball bounces uh, a few uh, different ways and maybe a few diff- different decisions that, uh, that Yogi Berra made. So there's a lot of things that come into play, so nobody's apologizing. And look, the seven line and the passionate fans, everybody's going to show up for an NLCS against the Cubs or the Dodgers if the Mets are in it whether they won 82 games, 92 games, or 100 games. They're going to show up at that point. I think it's how engaged you are leading up to that. Now, what I am willing to concede and give up is you might want to play a wild card play-in and a little bit more than just two teams because as you start to get into uh, the wild card and you really look at those tiers of teams – what really? Now, just go back to last year. What's really the difference between the 89-win Milwaukee Brewers and the 86-win? This is 2019 standings, Mets, and the 85-win Arizona, and the 84-win Cubs. Uh, not much. Not much. I mean, look, the Nats won 93 games, and 
that's where you could make the debate and the discussion if the Nats really don't want to be in this wild card muck on the you know rules going forward. Try to win the division. Push to win the division against the Braves who won 97 games. Get yourself into the 95, 96, 97 range. Because here, here you go. You win 93 games. And here you are playing in a, in a wild card muck tournament. Well, welcome to how things happen in baseball. 93 San Francisco Giants win over 100 games. Nobody, nobody feels sorry for them at that point in time. They make the playoffs today. Uh, the Mets win 97 games in 1985. Uh, they don't make the playoffs. Nobody felt sorry. The Cardinals didn't, you know, say let's let's you know lower the bar here to get them in. Uh, same thing with the '99 Mets, the team that we mentioned just earlier. They almost did. They had a play in to get the playoffs to get it with with the wild card. A '97 win team. They had a you have a playing game to get in there uh, because the Reds played so well throughout that summer, and the bar to get into the playoffs with the wild card was so high. So you know what? Win the division. Go out there and do what you have to do. So. What I do think, and Ken Rosenthal talks about this in The Athletic, what would make me feel better about this whole situation is, okay, do you do the wild card play-in where now you have to win two games, winner-take-all games, in a tournament of four? So if you go back to last year, because we're not going to use the standings this year, you'd have Washington, Milwaukee, Mets, Arizona. Those would be the four teams. The Mets would have to, uh, Arizona would have to go to Washington to play a winner-take-all Nats. The Mets would have to go to Milwaukee to play winner-take-all Brewers. And then the winners of those games, depending on how it bounced, would have to then, right away, no day off, probably fly, you know, potentially across the country, depending on who's in this spot. I know that that'll throw people for a, for a loop, uh, you know, the health police. <laughs> when it comes, and I don't mean pandemic health, I mean the pitching health. That's what I mean, before people get crazy. So, um you know, the, you know, maybe you have to, and then you have to play another game to get in. Think of it like how the Mets, and it really mirrors. If you want to go use nineteen ninety nine as an example, how the Mets had to win three consecutive games against the Pirates at, at Shea Stadium in nineteen ninety nine, and then fly to Arizona on a Monday, no day off, to win that game. Uh, excuse me, no, they had a first the fly to Cincinnati. Sorry, they had a fly to Cincinnati, beat the Reds, and then right after that, fly to Arizona to win play game one against the Diamondbacks. Very similar. And by the time you take a breath and you're back at Chase Stadium for game, you play the second game in Arizona, by the time you can take a breath and get a day off and get to Chase uh, Stadium for game three against the Diamondbacks in that series, you know, you've been through a lot of baseball, through a lot of bullpens, through a lot of starts. You know, Masato Yoshi pitched game one in that series, so there was certainly an advantage uh, to the Diamondbacks who won their division. That makes sense. I can live with that. And you want to know something? I'll support something like that. Because you've seen facsimiles of that, not intentionally, but unintentionally throughout various parts of uh, wild card history, Mets being part of it and what have you. It then also, like uh, is being talked about, comes into play with, are you making it more competitive at the bottom? Because now I'm an owner. And if my team's in, in that early August, you know, late July with the deadline race, and I think you definitely will have to extend the trade deadline to middle of the August. I think they have to really consider that. Then I'm going to tell my GM, let's go for it. Let's not just sell off people. Let's bring in some veterans. Do we really need to give, uh, you know, do we need to get, you know, what's the difference between the 10th pick and the 15th pick in the draft? We're all sitting around. I mean, there's actually people that sit around and will look at, or scouts that will tell them, look at this, you know, 
high school player or a college player, and they tell you you can't miss. You know how many guys in history have can't miss, and we'll play for that draft pick to get the rights to that guy when we could play to get in the postseason. And every team probably could cobble together a decent enough rotation and a and a, and a couple of relievers to be competitive enough in that bandwidth. When you talk about wins between eighty five and ninety, they're not great teams, but they're not chop liver. They're teams that could get hot to get into the tournament and win, and that would create some excitement and competition, at least with four, two additional cities, because now instead of two wild cards, you have two more, and you probably have the guys that are just beneath that are probably going to hang in there. Isn't that a better, and I'm okay with reducing the, the season six games, isn't that better than playing the last week and scoreboard watching that will go back in history? The Mets had a scoreboard watch that the Brewers would beat the Reds, and they did, and the Mets got in, and the Mets had to beat the Pirates. So here you have teams like the Pirates and the Reds had no uh, Pirates and the Brewers were not going anywhere, impacting the pennant race. Wouldn't it be better for everybody just to play each other? Let them play each other, impact the pennant race their ways, reduce it by six games. You know, have the expanded wild card play, and maybe you could even get it where um, maybe there's a day off to kind of let there be a break so the fans could talk about it and you could enjoy the win. I know what they want to accomplish is they want to make it as hard as possible for any of those teams that as they get to the NLDS, that they, you know, they don't have any kind of advantage because you're really, you really got to give the pennant winners, uh, the division winners an advantage. So now you have three division winners. The best division winner gets a bye. The next two division winners wait for the wild card teams to beat them up. And by the time those teams get... In, um, you know, they've already probably gone through the two top pitchers. So now you're dealing with pitcher number three, and because they're wild card teams, especially if they're lower wild card teams, the only trade off here is, is you might start to see some ugly game ones and game twos where those teams are burnt out, and the better team, which has won their division and and planned and and probably is a better team overall for a variety of reasons, is going to you know have a distinct advantage. But that at least puts some incentive on the regular season, maybe more so than with the traditional. You know, old school wild card with one wild card, you know, because you could go in and, and at that point you were like, all right, I'm a wild card. Big deal. I'm in the postseason. I'm in the four team tournament. I could support that. I could get into something like that. And then maybe I'd feel a little bit better that this week as the Mets uh, are looking at competing and, and, and potentially making the playoffs as unlikely as that is. I'd feel more better getting into that. I think you as a fan would get, feel more better than that. And I think you could support that. And you meet and you check off a couple of the boxes that baseball's trying to do. you got to meet baseball halfway. Baseball wants to have more revenue. Baseball wants to have more interest. Baseball can't fix its own problems internally because the mindset is so bad with winning and competing. I think it's not going to change. This could do it because you're adding playoff teams and you're adding them in a way that I think – doesn't really water down what you have already. You're just making the the prize, the wild card, a little bit tougher to 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 earn. And then you go in and you put a dis- distinct disadvantage as the wild card, as in that athletic article that Rosenthal wrote. And apparently, this is actually Jerry Reinsdorf's idea. Believe it or not, an old hawk, an old hawk owner from the '80s. That's his idea. Um, I could support it. That's what you know. Do you want to talk about real change? Going into 2021, keep the DH. You need it. I know selfishly it helps the Mets. Do something along the lines with the Ken Rosenthal, Jerry Reinsdorf wild card idea that I just laid out to you. Uh, get rid of the runner on second base and do not do seven inning double headers. We get, can't start, you know, playing little league baseball here. You're you're going to distort the game and you're going to distort the rules. And even if you want to go down six games in the regular season, I know some gates 
are going to be impacted for certain teams around the league that are not in the postseason. But guess what? You're probably not going to be drawing all that many people, especially in the near term. So what are you really missing? It's probably cheaper not to open the doors for those six games if you're out of it than to open it up, have the overhead and the cost for an empty ballpark or a near-empty ballpark, even if you're allowed fans at any kind of capacity in 2021. So that's my take. You know, not so much about how the Mets can make the playoffs, but how this new playoff system can evolve and grow and make us feel like there's some value to it and that we're not just being given 50 points to be in the bumper bowler tournament, bumper bowling tournament, you know, because we're nice guys or girls and, and people want to see us compete and win. All right, let's take a quick break. When we return, Louis Rojas. We haven't talked about him. We talk so much about Mickey Calloway and Terry Collins on this show over the years, and the manager is always such a big part of the conversation. But the Mets have been struggling. There's been some questionable bullpen decisions over the last couple of months. But you don't hear a lot of talk from the media or the fans about Louis Rojas and how good or bad he's done. And Andy Martino earlier this week on SNY's Shea Anything podcast was the first to really throw out there that the Mets may have found their manager. We'll talk about that more right after this. He's Boone. He's um, any of these guys that are sort of doing database managing that's organizational. Um, I was talking to one person who knows him well. I said, I wonder if he could be like an AJ Hinch type someday. And the person said, a, a, a high ranking baseball official said to me, he's better than AJ Hinch ever was now. That's what this uh, baseball official was saying to me. And I mean, I don't know about that, but because I thought Hinch was very good in his day with the Astros. But the idea is that he, he knows how to follow the script. He's got some good instincts here and there around the script. Uh, but the in-game stuff, again, is not really what I base it on, Doug. It's just, it's a presence. It's a feel. It's the way he communicates. It's the way he's all, you know how smart he is and how thoughtful he is uh, by the way that he explains the things that didn't work out and the things that did. But like the way he was able to explain the, the taking out Peterson thing, he said, what I just explained, he said that this amount of pitches, this lane for righties, you got Brock in the bullpen and it's not Rojas's fault that Brock couldn't find the strike zone in that particular game. It was the right, it was, I don't want to say it's the right move. Um, if Todd Zeal on the post game thought it was the wrong move, he knows more about baseball than I do. I'm not going to disagree with, with that. I'm just going to say that it was a move with rationale behind it. It wasn't some seat of your pants move. There's the way that he communicates with players and my reporting, like, if he's going to sit somebody or make a difficult lineup decision or tell or, or someone's going to be taken out for defense, they're not surprised. He takes people in. He, he explains it to them similarly to how he explains it to the media. The data shows us this. And like, he might tell Robinson Cano, look, we see, we think you're a brilliant uh, second baseman with a high baseball mm -hmm. IQ, but your range is declined. So, you know, late, in, in games with in a close game with a lead we're gonna we're gonna make a move on defense and explain it that way and it seems to be working now I'm sure there are some guys that have been upset at different times we heard Pete Alonzo kind of hinting that he wasn't happy about DHing about a week ago uh, but it, it's hard to manage this many egos at once but I think overall my reporting is I know that he's communicating well with them and we can't I, look we're not in the clubhouse I, I, I'm sure that's happened I wish I could tell you a little bit more firsthand. So that's why I started making some calls. Like, is he losing guys with how honest and blunt he's being? And what I was told was, no, they love him. All right, we're back. And I thought that was a good clip from the Shane Anything podcast. Give him a free plug 
over at SMY. He listen, you could criticize, and I do criticize Andy Martino, uh, and I criticize sometimes the the guys over at uh, SNY, but they do. He does a really good job. He does really good reporting. He's connected with the team. And you get a good feel of where the thought process is, and it allows you to validate some of the opinions on this show and the way that I look at things, and then maybe the way that you in turn listen and um, and connect that with your opinion, so that you could be a more, a better educated, more well informed fan, more informed consumer of of the product. So, what did we hear from there? Uh, we heard a lot, and it goes back to what I always tell you when we evaluate managers here, and I'll say it again. How do they communicate with their uh, clubhouse? Now you have to also look at how you manage up because it's not like the old days where you had uh, a manager with his own domain. Uh, you have to always manage up your boss no matter what business you're in. And certainly you have to do that even more now because your boss, the front office, is inserting themselves into a lot of the game planning, the script, which drives me crazy because I don't think baseball, although you need a script, I think you need to have some of your own uh, – influence when the game is kind of flying by the seat of its pants uh, because that's what the baseball's that's what baseball's about you don't know what's going to happen you don't know how players are going to react you don't know uh, what happened earlier and how that uh, impacts something that happened in the seventh inning so that's that's another story for another day you have to manage that bullpen I know there's a script now but you have to manage that bullpen that's where the X's and O's come into play there's very little X's and O's I think that a manager could really impact negatively that bullpen is where they have the most power and where they could have the most do the most damage we've seen that over the years with Collins as the manager of the Mets and then of course there's managing the media because that's who's going to be your mouthpiece and to a certain degree as if you listen to that podcast in its entirety Martino talks about that because uh, it was actually Doug Williams that might have spoken about it more uh, on that particular show that that's what the fans are going to see. The fans are going to get the color commentary. What they heard from the manager, whether they like it or not, is going to be uh, influenced by the media's take on that. And that's where it's interesting. And the name of this podcast was Beware of Shiny Objects because, as we'll get into in the next segment with the front office and all the gratuitous advice now that everybody in the media has advice for Steve Cohen, as if a guy who who made $14 billion in his life and built himself self-made – whether you like the way he did it and you have questions about the authenticity of some of his practices. I don't care about that. He made it. You know, that's not easy to do. Not many people put on their tombstone, I made $14 billion. Uh, it's an accomplishment. Let's put it that way. Um, we're going to be, as as a, as from a reporting standpoint, from a fan base standpoint, there's going to be a lot of shiny objects thrown our way to talk about. Big name front office executives. Uh, big name free agents, big name managers. Everybody's going to want a piece because remember now they got a big fish coming into the Met universe, and there's money to be made. Remember, it's all about money. If you read that article, especially the article about uh, that Bill Madden put out there in the Daily News about some of the suggested hires that he threw out there, these are probably people that they have relationships with over the years. And let's throw their names out there. Who knows? And I could, you know, get myself my buddy that's helped me out over the years a job. And uh, and be clued in with information. If you're competing in the world of media, that's a big thing. So always look behind suggestions from the media about who should get jobs. There's an agenda behind it, believe me. But that's not the main point here. The main point here is is that when the Mets did their search, we talked about the Shoalwaters and the Girardis and and things like that. And I was in I was for 
going that route. I was for Girardi. I was on record with that. But once that didn't happen, I said, let's move away from that. I'm not all about John Gibbons. I'm not, you know, as time goes on, as Buck Showalter, as he as he gets further and further away from the game, has he become somewhat of an antiquated type of situation? Um, even A.J. Hinch, who Andy Martino talks about, who I know for a fact because of the relationship with Van Wagen, and that's the guy they would have loved to have pried away. Imagine if that happened. It would have been a wild, even more wild off season than we had last year. Uh, he didn't do well in Arizona, and he did well in Houston, and everybody talks about how great of a manager and a communicator he is, but we found out there was almost a, he was afraid of a coup in his clubhouse because of the sign stealing. So he looked the other way, and he lost his job for it, and he got suspended a year for it. And I'm sure he'll get hired again, but there's going to be a lot of questions for the rest of his career over that unless he could turn that around. It remains to be seen. So all these big names, all these nice little toys, the art collector they're going to call uh, Steve Cohen, to me don't necessarily push the Mets any more forward than where they are now. And at one point, Buck Showalter was a nobody. A.J. Hinch was a nobody. Go on and insert manager Tommy Lasorda before he became a manager. Davey Johnson. Davey Johnson was a nobody when the Mets took him over from a standpoint of managing. I mean, I wasn't around back then. I don't think everybody would have said, you know, they probably there were people who wanted George Bamberger to stay the manager. Or you have Dallas Green, who was more established at that point. Whatever. You get what I'm talking about. So just because Louis Rojas is a no-name... Does it mean 10 years from now he will be a no-name? His father, Felipe Alou, was a no-name when he was given the job as the Expos manager in a time when there weren't as many minority managers, and that wasn't a thing. And he became very successful, and he's well-respected now after many, many years. And he had other stops and other opportunities to win, and, and he spent a lot of time in a market where Nobody knew who he was, and he didn't really have the resources to win until he went over to San Francisco, and, and then that things changed. But well-respected uh, manager, a nobody when he was hired. So just because the guy's a nobody and because you know there's a better name out there doesn't mean he, they're better managers. You may have the, the right guy under your nose. Now, listening to what Martino says, the most important thing that right now you can do is communicate. Not coddle, communicate with the players. And that was going to be the nuance that we talked a lot about with respect to this season. So, you know, Cano gets, like Martino said, Cano gets benched in the middle of games for defense. Um, Pete Alonso is now no longer the first baseman. He's a DH or not playing. You're seeing Rosario lose his job out there to Jimenez. You know, that's also, now again, that's a front office collaborated decision. That's the direction that you have to go now, especially as a young manager. And as he gets more cachet, I'm sure his voice, if not already having a big impact in those meetings, will have a more of an impact. But you don't, you know, that's a former number one overall prospect. Maybe, certainly for the Mets, maybe in baseball at one point. And now he's riding the pines. Even though he had a big game-winning home run just a couple of weeks ago. It tells you a lot about what this guy has had to face. Cespedes walked out the door. He didn't cave to Cespedes and say, oh, you know, you're upset about your contract. You know, all right, here you go. Go play left field. No, this is the plan. I'm sure he tried to explain it to him. When Cespedes didn't like it, he walked out. You think Cespedes probably didn't try somewhere before or have an inkling that whatever he was going to try to insert his influence in his mind, whatever influence he had left, you don't think he thought about that? And he said, I'm not going to be able to do that here. We've seen him have some battles on the bench with uh, McNeil. We've seen him go at it a little bit with umpires in a, in a very measured way. And I think that's where you don't see a lot of uh, 
talk about Rojas because you don't really know enough. First, the Zoom calls are not as personal. Again, Big Tech will tell you otherwise. They're not. The nuance of being around the clubhouse and talking to people and really having a feel of what's going on has been completely lost because of the pandemic protocol media rules. Who knows when that's coming back? And who knows if the league wants that back? So now you really have to work twice as hard to see, let's peel the onion and what what really is going on down there. Let's look under the hood. Let's look under the covers. And it's harder. You have to call around. You have to see. You have to ask. We're assuming that the, the team is is happy. But without the reporter access, without the ability to get that disgruntled fourth outfielder or really get to talk to Pete off the record, I don't think Pete would say anything negative, but you get where I'm going. You, he may be shielded a little bit more than normal. So we have to reserve some of that, how much of his uh, communication and ability to handle the clubhouse is real or is it being helped by less media attention. I don't think he's managed the bullpen great. I think some of that has to obviously do with the personnel. I don't think it's awful. I specifically think he stayed a little bit too long with guys like Dylan Batances when it was very clear they didn't have anything those days. I think back to that Atlanta game earlier in the year on that Friday night when they blew a six-run lead. It was clear that Batances was on the precipice of breaking. Now, on Saturday, you saw a little bit of difference, and, and obviously Freddie Freeman coming up played into that, but he got Castro out of there because Freeman coming up and brought Justin Wilson and got the double play and got out of it. He was about to break. He was bending Castro. He was about to break. It was pretty clear. So the bullpen management, which is also a collaboration with the front office, which is also your personnel, I think there's some feel for the game that he could improve upon. I'm sure his bosses like him. Uh, I don't know, and, and if any indication early about Steve Cohen is that he's going to come in and sweep the chimney out, he's not. He's bringing Sandy Alderson back as an advisor, it sounds like. Paul D. Podesta might be coming back to the organization. Sounds like a lot of the old school, last 10-year Fred Wilpon guys are going to be around a little while longer. Uh, I wouldn't be, And I don't think Brody Van Wagen is going anywhere. So I know that everybody's got these dreams of him coming in like the old Entourage episode, like Ari Gold into the uh, agency and hitting everybody with a paintball gun and starting over. That's not going to happen, it sounds like. So I don't know why that would happen in the dugout. But there'll be pressure. There'll be pressure from quarters of the media because they have relationships with these guys or because these would be sexy off-season and off-season where we don't know how many moves will be made and how sexy the headlines and how easy it will be to write about the sport. These would be the kind of moves that would be good for, for media moves, shiny object moves. But just because you have a very reliable towel that's getting the job done there in the dugout, maybe that's the way you look at it, doesn't mean that that's the wrong guy for the job. There's a lot of things that you're hearing in what Martino's talking about that are good things. Now, managing the media, I think the only thing, because he's gotten a lot of good press even before the shutdown of the league about how he is handling things. He's very measured, very balanced. I don't think he's condescending to the media. I think he's very matter-of-fact. I agree with Martino. You have to really listen to these blandish, you know, rote, press conferences to get some of the messages he's sending out there. He's not going to start doing a fake outrage, tough guy act like Terry Collins to get your attention. That'll, that plays well with the press and the fans, but that's people could see through that. Listen to what Martino said. The players listen to these things and go, is that that same guy? And I think the one thing with the communication, and it wasn't in that clip, but I know it came up at some point during that same podcast, is 
Mickey Calloway struggled with connecting one-on-one with his players. Mickey even at one point, I remember, this probably is his first year on the job, late in the first year, was talking to Wayne Randazzo on the pregame show, and he talked about one of the things that he had to adjust throughout the year is spending less time in meetings and in interviews and doing his responsibilities for the market, let's say, and more time talking to the players and being engaged with the players so he understands what's going on in their heads out there, walking around. That's always something that I've been told that a, a good manager does. They walk around, they talk, not just to their stars, but they really get to know what everybody's up to, both personally, professionally, what do they feel about that. It helps you a lot. It's not stratomatic cards, remember that. And it sounds like Rojas does a much better job of that, and it probably comes easier to him because as a quality control coach and someone who's managing the minor leagues, he's had to do that as he, as he was part of player development. So there's a lot of good things here that check off the boxes that we talk about when it comes to evaluating managers. None of it's sexy. And some of that lack of sex appeal, if you want to use that term, is maybe because of the ability to cover it from a media perspective. But I also think it's good that we're focused more on how the club could be improved because, let's face it, there's only so much a manager can do in this sport. It's not like a football coach. It's not Bill Belichick coming in. That's not how the sport works. Uh, It's not like Pat Riley coming in to take over the Heat or the Knicks. That's not the kind of thing that goes on in baseball. It's a different type of sport. If you have the right manager who could communicate with the players, gets along with his bosses, is an intelligent baseball person, and really could connect with the players. Because at the end of the day, this is becoming more and more of a player's league. The bullpen thing is just as much the front office collaborating with the manager. And getting the feel of the game should come as you normalize your rotation, where you don't have, and part of that is bad players and and the injuries, but these three-inning starts don't make it easy for you to manage a bullpen day in and day out. Let's remember that. So just like I wouldn't hold every player's feet to the fire for their performances one way or the other in this pandemic-shortened season, I'm not going to go crazy on Rojas either. I think he deserves a chance. I mean, the guy was given the job a couple of weeks before spring training, and 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 he's been able to hold his own. There's something to be said about that. So there's some positives out of the manager's front office. That chair may be filled, at least for the short term. He's got another year on the contract. He's not going anywhere. He's going to have, I believe, the same 12-month trial that I think Cohen's going to give everybody in the organization. That's what's going to happen. I've been telling you that for a while. Nobody's going anywhere day one unless something really wacky happens. And I know that doesn't make everybody feel good, and I know that's not cool for the media headline, that's the right thing to do. So, Louis Rojas, our first little look at Rojas. I think Noah will continue to do that. I am not going to put a failure to make the postseason in a season where most teams make the postseason, most competent teams make the postseason. I'm not going to throw that at his feet. The one improvement, bullpen management, but I could probably say that about the 29 other managers out there and experienced managers on top of that. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a tough grader when it comes to that stuff. All right, let's take a quick break. When we return, Brian Cashman? GM of the Mets getting rid of Brody and bringing in Theo Epstein. Are we on drugs? Are we? <laughs> what are we doing here? Shiny objects. Let's get real here. Let's get real how things work. And it looks like an old friend is returning, which I'm not sure how I feel about that. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The first thing I would do if I were Steve Cohen would be to set up a meeting with Brian Cashman and say, Brian, you name your price. What you've done with the Yankees, how you know New York, 
You waited and you spent big money on Garrett Cole. Whether that works out or not doesn't matter to me. I collect art. I, I want you as an art piece in my collection. And then I want you to surround yourself in the gallery with great players when you think it's necessary for us to get great players. That, that would be the advice I would give Steve Cohen. I, I don't think anybody has navigated through uh, Steinbrenner to a younger Steinbrenner from we're all in on, you know, Reggie Jackson. We're all in on making sure we are competitive. We are aggressive and we're brash. And I think Cohen can be both of those. And I think there needs to be a voice of reason at the hull of the ship. And I don't think anybody has done this job better um, given the circumstances of New York city and has the know-how than Brian Cashman. That would be my advice to Steve Cohen. All right, we're back. Everybody in the media, Buster Olney, Joel Sherman, everybody with a blog uh, who has you know yet to really manage anything in their life outside of maybe going to class is giving Steve Cohen advice. Guy made $14 billion, has owned the team on a minority level for quite a bit of time. So, okay, you know, here we go. Uh, well, I guess I'm not here to give advice. I'm here to give an opinion about what I think is going to happen. I guess I do give advice. So maybe I'm a phony and a fraud on that. But be that as it may... It's very clear now that it was announced yesterday, uh, first reported by Andy Martino. I know John Heyman jumped in on that, that there's a, a strong possibility that Sandy Alderson is going to rejoin the front office. And I know right away the fans, well, oh, this is great. He's going to come back and be the GM with money. I, I don't think Sandy really has the desire to be in that role. I think he wants to be more in a uh, advisory role. And I don't think it's a bad move. And this was brought up on Twitter. And I thought about it last night. And then it was brought up on Twitter. And I'm like, that's that's smart. And I retweeted it out that this is as much of a baseball political move as he connects with an old school baseball, you know, former guy that worked in the commissioner's office to help him with, hey, I'm coming in. I don't know what I don't know. You've been in this sport a long time through a number of generations. You just recently built this team and got it to a World Series, you know, help me out a little bit. Let me advise me on what I can see. And he's probably a senior baseball advisor. Maybe he's going to be the uh, VP of baseball operations. I mean, maybe that's maybe that's all this talk about Cashman coming in and Theo Epstein coming in. I don't know if day one they're just going to drop everything that they have to jump in the middle of a pandemic uh, economy with good jobs that they have at their current organizations to go work for a guy that, let's face it, they don't know who he is. And in a team that has had a very sketchy history with job security and with the ability to get the job done, and uh, of course a huge media market. But what I do find pretty interesting is, here's what I think is going to happen. What's going to happen is that Cohen's going to evaluate the whole organization for a year. He's going to try to compete and win, but he's going to evaluate the whole organization. I don't think they're going to tear it down and rebuild. They're going to look at how they could go into 2021, and I think continuously from a responsible, and I'll go back to what Brody's been saying, they're going to try to win now and win in the future. I don't think they're going to make any crazy go-all-in, trade-a-bunch-of-prospects type of moves. They'll probably try to sign some free agents. They should be able to. I know uh, that Real Muto is a name that continues to come up, and that's a good name. A little worried about the recent hip injury. That's something to keep an eye on. That's a conversation for another day. 
So he's going to do that. Bringing in a Cashman, bringing in an Epstein, as much as I think those would, I think Epstein would be, if you want to go and make a splashy front office move, it's not Cashman, it's Epstein. Epstein has rebuilt not one, but two organizations that were star-crossed. The Mets are not necessarily the Cubs or the Red Sox, but they're not that far off in terms of negative fan base, difficult media coverage about the, the losing, uh, and in a situation where I think the fans really need they need a win to change the culture, to change the they need they need something to move them forward. Now, will Cohen's checkbook alone do that? We'll see. But I think going into those two situations, Theo Epstein's resume is far more interesting than anything Cashman has done. Now, Epstein may come in and want to do the same thing he did with Chicago. And I think the Mets have more than what the Cubs had uh, when he came in uh, about 10 years ago. Probably the blueprint would be more like the Red Sox when Duquette, who I thought had a big part in building the 2004 champion, uh, but they needed somebody, I guess, that could get them to the next level because they were very disappointing, the Red Sox. Uh, you know, in those early Pedro years, they didn't get it done. They were in the midst of the Yankee dynasty. So Epstein came in and, and got them to the next level um, and brought some new ideas to the table. That's probably a more likely comp. Mets are not that old, that much different than where the Red Sox were 2001, 2002. They had talent. They just needed to kind of get it to the next level. I don't know if that's even realistic. Cashman, to me, the biggest accomplishment Cashman has made in his career to the Yankees is bringing the old Tampa faction that was the Steinbrenner people and the baseball people and somehow merging the two and making the baseball people more prominent. Because as much as people say, look at George, he was suspended, he stay at, stayed out of it, and the Yankees won four World Series in five years, that started to change post-2000 when the Tampa faction was more interested in signing Jason Giambi and Mike Mussina and the next shiny object. And if the Yankees don't win a World Series, it's misery. There was really no hardcore baseball principles being espoused in Steinbrenner's Tampa circle. It was all emotional fan stuff. You know, guys with money that wanted to continue the excellence of the Yankee tradition and bringing in a free agent or the best free agent possible. That's how you do it and and beat everybody up until they, you know, compete or improve to the level that's Yankee, uh, you know, worthy. That's that's what that was all about. And eventually Cashman said, look, we need to build a baseball team. We need to have a better minor league system. We need to to balance out our free agent spending and our money with uh, internal uh, development, which didn't happen at all during the core four early years, during the you know late 90s. They really didn't have any prospects that came back to bite them. Alfonso Soriano is really the only one, if you think about it. And as time went on, they made that transition. All the focus on analytics and the money spent, well, that has to do with that at your disposal that he had, the treasure chest that he had. Um, he still had a lot of uh, guys like Hank Steinbrenner when he didn't want to re-sign A-Rod the second time with that old Tampa faction mindset at, you know, getting in front of him. You know, that was hard for him to overcome, but he eventually won and he got power in the organization. But he wasn't Billy Bean. He didn't innovate anything with analytics. It's not like back in 2000 or 2001, Cashman was screaming from the top of the hill saying, the Yankees need to be more efficient. You know, that never happened. He was going out there and, and signing free agents, and he had a big checkbook. And I've defended Cashman over the years. You know, the old NYBD, when we covered both teams, I defended him. I thought that the, that the knock on it just being money uh, was unfair. And it is unfair because bringing those two factions together, managing up, managing that difficult, that difficult boss, no pun intended, that difficult management structure, 
that's not to be taken lightly. Nobody in Yankees history under Steinbrenner has been able to do that. Now, Steinbrenner is long gone, and Hal is not his father, and he's certainly not the late Hank, who was emotional, in my opinion, like his father. And you look at the Yankees over the last few years, and I see a lot of prospect collecting. I see a guy that has been afraid to make a bold move, has probably cost him a championship. I hear in that clip, oh, he waited to acquire Jarrett Cole. No, he didn't intentionally wait to acquire Jarrett Cole like a free agent. He didn't want to give up anything of value. I mean, Cashman is a guy that likes to give you a quarter or 50 cents on the dollar. He does a great job interacting with the media to get them to kind of be his mouthpiece and and market the Yankees in a way that I think he hopes influences deal-making. Um, I think his resume is that much less impressive. I think there's a lot of impressive things, and he survived in the New York market, and give him credit for that. But he's no Theo Epstein. And at the end, I don't see where getting Brian Cashman, firing Brody or getting Brian Cashman, is changing anything other than a headline on a newspaper. I really don't. I don't think that that's moving the team forward at all. You know, you don't know how he's going to be in this environment. He's threatened to go to the Mets before. And that, that would have been a paper move, a newspaper move, a headline move. If you want to bring in, and I think it's a very sensible strategy that they're recommending, and it sounds like Cohen's going to do, a VP of baseball operations to oversee the organization and be the conduit to the ownership group over Brody Van Wagenen. That makes sense. Right now, that's Jeff Wilpon, and we know that that's not necessarily a good thing. And, uh, you know, that was what the situation was. That's not Brody's fault. That's his boss. That's who hired him. In a year, you know, they'll make their recommendations that the Mets continue to not perform to an acceptable level. They continue to underperform. You continue to see some of the moves they've made blow up and you question them. He's going to lose his job, Brody. I mean, he knew that coming in, that you, you get hired to get fired. You're going to get fired within uh, usually a five-year span is your shelf life in some of these sports front office jobs. You hope longer. But then I hear, you know, the people that want to just throw Brody off the island here. You know, you have Bill Madden talking about Brian Sabin and Ned Coletti. These are guys that got out of the business because it was passing them by. Bobby Valentine's name. In a lot of ways, the business was passing Sandy Alderson by. The business is so different on the field and in the front office from just five years ago. It's younger. It's way more analytically driven. You have to have the newest and the best idea in front of you because your competition does. And I also laugh because I hear, I read actually, Joel Sherman talk about how, well, the Mets have this young up-and-coming African-American executive, Jared Banner, that might be a possibility if you bring in a Theo Epstein. Well, who brought Jared Banner into the organization and basically took him and Allard Baird from the Red Sox? It was Brody Van Wackenen. It wasn't, I mean... Give the guy some credit. I mean, he's not perfect. He's made some questionable moves. You know, I'm sure he's learning on the job. And then what makes me laugh even more is that they're all going to fire Van Wagenen because he's an agent with no experience. And then in the next breath, they'll say, well, when Cohen was going to take over the Dodgers, he's going to hire Arn Tellen, agent, to be his vice president of, of his baseball operations. I'm like, who's, by the way, in the NBA right now? So I'm like saying here, I'm like banging my head against it. Are we reading what we're putting out there? So here, here's the thing. First of all, the media's got to stay out of the hiring advice. Let's let's just they they they, they 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 want you to hire someone for a headline. They want you to hire someone for the newspapers to to give them some content because it's going to be a tough content winter. I think. I don't think you're going to have. You're probably not going to have a winter meetings. 
You're not going to have the spending that you normally have. You're going to have to struggle a little bit to put some content out there. There's only so many 76 Reds things you could go look back at or old lookbacks at Randy Johnson's career or whatever if you're looking at the media's perspective. But let's just look at the sensible thing, what's going to happen here. The guy's going to evaluate. He's going to bring in some people he trusts. He's bringing in Lowndes. I'm telling you, it sounds like it's going to be Sandy Alderson, and I'm not sure how I feel about that, but... I understand why he's doing that, and it's not a horrible move. If you're going to pry a guy like Epstein or Cashman away, even if that's what you want to do, they're not going to come here to be the GM. They want to be a VP of baseball operations. They want a a, a pay raise, number one. They want a job title increase. If they're going to be GMs, just stay where they are. Epstein's not even the GM over in Chicago. He hasn't been a GM in a while. He's an executive now. And you got to let go of some of the dinosaur names like Bobby Valentine and Saban and Coletti. You know, those are good advisors, and they maybe are good executives to have in the front office, but they're not going to do the job day in and day out. And I don't know if they could connect and compete with the younger generation that's in the front offices across baseball. I just don't. And I think it's just as simple as that. So get all the ideas out. It's, it's, it's not going to happen. The Mets have their front office. They're going to add probably to that and invest more in analytics and invest more in that infrastructure. They're not going to go blow it up just to go make a headline in October, so that we could sit here and talk about Theo Epstein. But, I mean, if you want to talk about all the crazy ideas that have been thrown out there, I think Epstein is the most interesting one, but I don't see it happening. I think what you're going to get is you're going to get Sandy Alderson as some kind of high-level advisor. Omar is going to still be there. There's still going to be a Wilpon influence, guys. They still own 5% of the team. And Cohen knows these guys for a long time, and he's been involved in the organization, and he's, he's still, I don't care how long he's been around baseball as a minority owner and how many people he's spoken to, he still doesn't know what he doesn't know. And he's not going to come in and embarrass himself and spend millions of dollars of his money and, and throw it away because you want him to because you're tired of the Wolpons. Just keep that in mind and look at what's going on. Look at the names that are being bandied about. These are old Wilpon names. So it's not going to change overnight. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Beware of shiny objects. Like the headline of the podcast says, beware of shiny objects. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll wrap up with a final segment. I can't believe I have to talk about Brandon Nimmo again and educate you guys about how, again, similar to Luis Rojas, maybe he's not that sexy, but he's a hell of a lot better than you give him credit for. You're listening to the Documents Podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. Stop me if you've heard this before. The on-base percentage is good. Mm-hmm. The OPS is good uh batting average leaves something to be desired defense leaves a lot to be desired um do you let me let me pitch the question this way when you i'm guessing that you were one of the the many who heard from scouts and evaluators when nimmo was in triple a that he was probably a fourth outfielder type of guy um is he the player they thought he was like or is he much better? You're saying, is he actually just a fourth outfielder? That's your yes. question. Well, look, it's a good question. He's got and the on-base percentage uh, that's better than that. Uh, it suggests an everyday player. But that's his one real big tool, right? I mean, he's not – obviously, he's not a center fielder. We've seen that time in and time, day in and day out. And then metrics recently out just reinforced that. Uh, statistically, the worst – defensive center fielder in baseball this year um he doesn't have the bat to be your ideal corner guy so yeah maybe i don't know but i like him as your leadoff guy yeah me too he's not a complete player 
but he's a good leadoff hitter. So, yeah, I don't know. It is what it is. Yeah, I think he's better than a fourth outfielder, but is he an everyday player on a championship caliber team? Maybe not in a perfect world. That's that's why I asked. What is what yeah. a strange what a strange player. If he played a really good defensive second base, I'm not sure we'd be having this conversation. He'd just be the leadoff hitter, and he'd have an 850 OPS every year, and that would be that. Um, but he plays the corner outfield yeah. spots where a good on base percentage. I'm not sure if that's enough to give you an everyday job at left in left or right, um, and he cannot play center. Uh, if this team wants to, you know, compete for a World Series next year. So Nimmo strokes one in the right center field for a base hit. Around third and scoring as McNeil as it rolls to the wall. Here comes Jimenez around third. He's heading home. He will score. Nimmo to third. He slides in with a two-run triple. And the Mets have tied the game at six. With both teams and Nimmo drives one deep right field. Forget it. That ball is way out of here. Into the second deck. Nimmo gives the Mets the lead in the ninth inning. Brandon Nimmo with his eighth home run of the year, his second in the series, and he crushed it. All right, we're back. Final segment here. Hope you guys have enjoyed the podcast. So I'm going to wrap it up with Brandon Nimmo. And you want to talk about beware of shiny objects. It's Brandon Nimmo's a guy. All disclosure, and you you heard, a, a, again, that's from the Shea Anything podcast. You heard a, a breakdown of some of their thoughts. And, and their thoughts are very common fan media thoughts about Brandon Nimmo. All disclosure, I wasn't a big Brandon Nimmo fan when he got drafted. Eh, who's this kid who's working out in a barn out in... Nebraska, whatever, Wyoming, I don't really remember where exactly he's from, you know, in a non-baseball environment. And then through the minor leagues, his numbers never jumped off the page at you. And it took him a while to, he was not, he was just, he was learning the game. He was raw, raw skills. It was Sandy Alderson's first pick. And then you had the late Jose Fernandez, who was picked after him, have some success quickly. And you say, wow, imagine if the Mets had drafted that guy. And, and, you know, they could have had him in the rotation with Harvey and Wheeler, another another arm that, you know, was, was almost ready. And Nimmo was pretty much not part of it. And then he came up in 16, and he was goofy, and he had some energy. But it was very clear he still was way too patient. You know, he took too many third strikes, and you wanted him to be more aggressive with runners in scoring position and be more of a run producer. Not just a guy who could walk and get hit by a pitch and, and do the Charlie hustle. But he, that, he looked every bit the fourth outfielder. And when they almost traded him, I believe, for Jay Bruce, I had no issues with that. And it turns out it was a fortuitous failed physical. He had some issue with his knee, and they substituted Dilson Herrera, who at that time probably, I thought as a middle infielder, had a little bit more upside than Nimmo. Turns out I was wrong. So sometimes the best trades are the ones you don't make. Look at the Carlos Gomez trade. But old buddy Sandy Alderson. But as he started to get an opportunity to play in 2018, and then even though he was hurt last year, he's, he's back in the lineup full-time in September, and then now this year, it's very clear to me that this is a elite run creator. And the one number that with Brandon Nimmo that puts him in a very good light is if you go to fan grabs, it's RC+, runs creation. And 
that puts all the different offensive metrics together to, to give you an idea of where he stands versus his peers. And when he's been a full-time player, Brandon Nimmo has been number eight in all of the outfielders in baseball, all outfielders in National League, American League, and runs creation in 2018. So he's top 10. He was hurt in 2019, but when he came back and played every day in 2019, he was seven, I believe, in all of outfielders in September. Small sample size, but right back to where he was the year before with a large sample size. And this year he's 10th going into yesterday's game. So this is a guy that when he's been healthy and when he's played every day is top 10 outfielder in all of baseball in run creation, offensive player, better than Bryce Harper, Ricky Henderson level run creation numbers, Ricky Henderson level. I'm not saying he's Ricky Henderson. I'm not saying he's a Hall of Famer, but Ricky Henderson level to hear the media talk about him as a fourth outfielder as a, a piece that they could trade as a guy who can't be a corner outfielder because he doesn't profile well enough there because everybody just wants home runs now. They want you to have 45 home runs. You get 220, but if you have 45 home runs and, we, and you have an exit velocity on your outs of a billion, you're great. Everything else doesn't matter. I mean, really, we got to like start to think about this. The guy, I, and again, I talked to a scout I trust who's seen him play. Not every day seen him play, but watched him a little bit yesterday. Yes, the instincts sometimes are more of what he's about defensively. But he covers enough ground. He's not a gold glover. Uh, to take the defensive metrics in a season of small sample size seriously, I'm sorry, that's not smart. He's never going to probably play out good with the metrics. And we're still trying to figure out how to evaluate defensive metrics. I, I don't. Defensive metrics are the one advanced metric that is a lot harder to wrap your head around because they're inconsistent, and you see that inconsistency, and the eyes and the metrics don't match up. That's Maybe that's part of what advanced metrics always is. The eyes don't always match up with the advanced metrics, so they allow you to kind of question your eyes. But over the course of other advanced metrics, you can walk through a lot of that and, and make some educated deductions. Advanced metrics on defense just always have been tough for me to wrap my head around. I don't understand why this is a guy. And Howie Rose, I think, has put Nimmo. And let me read the tweet. So here it is. I was trying to bring it up here. I have to bring it up. I had it on my likes, and then I clicked the button, and here you go. Howie Rose goes, as I was saying, are Conforto, McNeil, Smith, Alonzo, and Nimmo the five best homegrown offensive players the Mets have ever produced on the same team at the same time? That's Howie Rose. He's seen a lot. He's seen a lot of homegrown players bust out. He's seen a lot of offensive players come through this team's history. And that's why you... As the milk carton expired on the pitching, and it expired in a big way this year, the longer-term expiration date and safer investment of offense has now become a reality for the Mets. And that's where, similar to I think where the Cubs were before they went on their run five years ago, where now you have to figure out how you do the pitching. That's what you're going to have to figure out. So I think the most part of that, I, I don't understand why... He's not appreciated. I don't understand why we're still having fourth outfielder conversations. I don't understand why he's always a good outfielder on a bad team. Well, you, this is a guy that you, this is an analytics guy. You know, we, we talk about analytics and we talk about smart people. 
and the media gushes over these these moves, but then they they advocate the exact opposite. I mean, look at Fangraphs. I mean, whether you like the run creation number or not, that's a whole different story. But that you put them in the same it's the same formula for Bryce Hopper as it is for Brandon Immo. Really is. Run creation means you're producing runs. That's what an offensive player is about. Now, wins above replacement factors in the defense, and he's not going to fare out as well there. I didn't say he was a complete 5-2 player. I didn't say that. He's an elite run producer, and you, those guys could have any have a position on my team. Let's put it that way. And he's a guy who could lead off. He's not a speedster there, but he allows the pitcher to work counts. I think he's evolved as a hitter where he's not overtly patient now where you're like, come on, man, that's a good pitch to hit. He knows when to go after it. Almost tied the game yesterday with a homer. I worry a little bit about, I've said this before, I worry about the herniated disc in his neck. I also wonder because he's a bit goofy, bit all of a slice of Americana. I know they don't like his politics. Does that play into it? I hope not. I really don't. I don't think it does with the fans. I'm sure some it may, be, it may play into. But you have to always wonder with the media. The guy's a good guy. He's a good guy. I know he rubs some people the wrong way with the Charlie Hustle stuff, but I think it's authentic. And he's a good offensive player. And to me, he's not a bad center fielder. Where Who are you going to bring in? You're going to bring in a guy like a Gold Glover that's a worse offensive player and you're going to feel better about it because he's a good center fielder? And I'm all about up the middle defense. He's not Roger Cedeno out there. He's just not. I don't see that. I think he's passable. I think you certainly would want somebody maybe as a defensive replacement and maybe move him over to corner because here's where it gets complicated. If the DH is still around, you still have a bit of an issue because you have J.D. Davis, who's probably not ever going to see a left fielder's glove again. He's going to either be a DH or a third baseman. You've got Dom Smith at first. Now you've got Alonzo, who probably has to DH if he sticks around. Maybe Dom, if Pete plays first, moves to left. McNeil needs a position, and you have Cano at second. McNeil doesn't play third if JD's there. I'm not about to trade McNeil. McNeil is is is, is every bit the run producer of Nimmo. Good hitter. I like his attitude too. Really, you know, it could go a little overboard with the Greg Jeffries act when he's slumping. But when it all said and done, he started to hit. And when he hits and he gets hot, he's he's lethal. So I don't see how moving him from center to left. Is going to happen, and I know what you're saying. Trade him maybe for a starting pitcher. Be real careful about starting to rip up the core of the offense for a starting pitcher. You better be right on that one. That's where Cohen's money could come into play, where you could find the right pitchers. You're going to get stung on some of those deals on the back end, but you could find the right pitchers through free agency if you have to. You know, you, you have to start developing some arms and realize the expiration date happens a lot sooner than you like. And that's why the Mets had to make some decisions because they had that pitching, because they knew that pitching was going to ex- expire. That's why they had to make some of the decisions over the last few years that maybe you look at now and say, <clears throat> why did they do Cano? Why did they do... D-? Well, pitching was the reason. They knew their pitching was on the clock. But again, and I'll leave you guys with this as we wrap up here. Brandon Nimmo's an elite offensive player. He's Ricky Henderson-level run producer. Look at the career runs creation numbers on Fangraphs. Come back. Tweet at me, at Mike Silva Media. Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Email me. It's crazy stuff. 
All right, that's it. I want to thank everybody. Of course, I want to thank uh, the guys at SNY. We used some of their clips today, so we got to give credit where credit's due. I don't know if that's legal or not, but hey, I guess my lawyers will be contacted about it. You can listen to the show all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast next week. Till then, take care, everybody. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.